This is the Inside the Boards podcast. You're listening to an archived episode of the 2017 Study Smarter series. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. Uh, we have Emily Tan from White Coat Coaching here. How would you best present your platform to students? So White Coat Coaching was made basically for students who are interested in pursuing orthopedics. We've got a website with a blog where we talk about tips and tricks on the application process to get from medical student to orthopedic resident. We're also working on an Instagram account for x-ray reading examples. And our most recent projects are two things. One, we're starting a podcast of our own where we talk to residents and attendings to discuss the different nuances of life as a medical student, life as a resident, and then life eventually as an attending orthopedic surgeon. And our newest endeavor is a, an ortho jumpstart course. Orthopedic surgery, orthopedics in general are not one of the more heavily taught subjects in medical school. And so we find that a lot of students who come to do away rotations with us lack kind of a scaffold on which to add a lot of this information. And the reality of our medical system is that you are learning from a lot of tired residents. And to get the best out of your rotation, it's good to come in with a basic amount of information that you can then put all the little um, extras about orthopedics on. And so that's what our ortho jumpstart course is hoping to do. Not to teach you everything you need to know about orthopedics, but just to give you a little introduction so that when you get to your away rotations, you can ask the right questions, you have a basic idea of where things fall, and then you can participate and learn a lot more during your away rotations. Awesome. So Today, Emily has agreed to help us with our Step 1 Study Smarter series, and specifically today, anatomy, because most of your Step 1 related anatomy questions are honestly going to be bones, muscles, nerves, tendons, the things that you're poking at and dealing with all day long, right? Yes, so definitely. you're the perfect person. Thanks for your time. Let's do a little warm-up question. So a 45-year-old male presents to the clinic complaining of painful medial rotation of the upper extremity. There is no history of trauma to the shoulder, but point tenderness is present along the anterior portion of the humerus. Which muscle is most likely implicated? A. Subscapularis. B. Supraspinatus. C infraspinatus or D, teres minor? I, I have no idea. I'm an OBGYN. I don't have to worry about these things anymore. What is the answer here? The answer here is subscapularis. This question stem doesn't give us a lot, but if you think about the anatomy of the rotator cuff, there is one clue in here that should point you to this answer. So medial or internal rotation of your shoulder is primarily controlled by one muscle, your subscapularis. The other muscles listed here are all part of your rotator cuff, but they do the opposite. So your supraspinatus is more in the abduction of your arm, and the last two here, the infraspinatus and the teres minor, do the external rotation part 
of your shoulders. So if they were to come into your office here, you would ask them to do what we call a belly press test or a, a back lift off test. So for the belly press, it is exactly what it, it sounds like. You have the patient put their hand on their belly and press on their belly. And that is basically internal rotation against resistance. And classically, that would cause pain because you have a problem with your subscapularis. And this muscle inserts on the anterior portion of your scapula and kind of scoops around your humerus and attaches to the anterior part of your humerus. So you can imagine then that if it were to shorten, it will pull on the anterior part of your humerus and cause this internal rotation. So any sort of internal rotation against resistance, be it pushing on your belly or putting your hand behind your back and trying to lift it off, all these things will cause pain. All right, that was just a warm-up. So we got a few more here. And this is sort of a shared ortho OB question. I thought this would be perfect. A 35-year-old <laughs> G2P1 presents at 40 weeks gestation in labor. Her past medical history is significant for diabetes, for which she is on insulin, and her pregnancy has been otherwise unremarkable. Baby boy is born via spontaneous vaginal delivery. Physical exam shows his weight at 4,500 grams. His left arm is pronated and medially rotated, and he is unable to move it away from his body. The infant's right arm functions normally, and he is able to move his wrist in all 10 digits. Which of the following nerve roots were most likely injured during the delivery? A, C4, and C5. B, C5 and C6. C, C6 and C7. D, C7 and C8. Or E, C8 and T1. And the answer for this is nerve roots C5 and C6, because this patient has herb Duchenne palsy, mm -hmm. right? C5, C6 nerve roots. So what are we looking at with kids who have an herb Duchenne palsy? So the story is classic for a big baby. And if you think about the classic picture. You probably know a lot more about what these babies look like when they're coming out, but the classic picture <laughs> is that their head is coming out and their neck gets side bent a lot while their arm is being pulled back. Um, so you can imagine then that on the brachial plexus, you're going to be stretching the more superior aspect of it, which would be your C5 and C6. And just for... The uh, OBGYNs in the audience remind me of the nerve roots involved in the brachial plexus. Okay, so the brachial plexus consists of C5 through T1. So the top of the brachial plexus, or anatomically, most superior nerve roots are obviously C5 and, and C6 when it comes to the brachial plexus. And I mean, you were right with... Um, kind of a description of what these kids look like when they're, they come out. Um, one of the risk factors, and you don't have to have this in order to get an Herb Duchenne palsy, um, but on the boards and in real life, a shoulder dystocia um, can help you think of why this happens 
and can clue you into a diagnosis of this on an exam because with a shoulder dystocia, you get impaction of the anterior shoulder against the pubic bone of the mom. And there's still uterine contractile activity behind baby trying to push baby out. And usually an assistant, an OB, is trying to help baby deliver because if they're stuck, obviously that is not a good situation for the oxygen levels in their brain if they uh, aren't delivered except for their head. So you get stretch or traction injuries, C5 and C6, uh, leading to an Herb Duchenne palsy, which is characterized by... So you've got the arm will be adducted, internally rotated, and then pronated and extended at the elbow. So if you break it up even further... Yeah, let's break that down. Like, why is it adducted? C5 comprises of your axillary nerve, your suprascapular nerve, and then your musculocutaneous nerve. So the axillary nerve uh, innervates your deltoid and your teres minor. And if you um, think about your first couple degrees of abduction, that is your deltoid. And then your suprascapular nerve will be innervating your supraspinatus and your infraspinatus. And those all have to do with abduction and internal rotation of the shoulder. And then if you look at your musculocutaneous nerve, you're talking about your biceps, which does elbow flexion. Then your C6, you're talking about your radial nerve deficiency, and that is most importantly for your brachioradialis and your supinator, which does more elbow flexion as well as supination of your forearm. So if you were to knock all of those things out, you would end up with an adducted, internally rotated at the shoulder and then the forearm will be pronated, and you'll have an extended elbow. So answer choice A was C4 and C5. How do, how do I rule that out if I'm presented with a vignette like so this? So C4 is not part of the brachial plexus, and the reason why brachial plexus is important here is that it goes and it wraps around your humerus down your arm. So if you were to push down on your shoulder, you wouldn't be applying traction on C4. Also, the symptoms... C3, C4, C5 keeps the diaphragm alive? Yes. So you would have a lot more problems if you had a C4 traction than just your arm not moving. All right. What about C6, C7? What do I need to know about those nerve roots? All right. So C7, you start to include your wrist flexors and finger extensors. Um, So a person with C7 injury would not have the normal wiggling of the 10 digits that the question stem has. Okay, so that rules that out. Wow, anatomy is easy. All right, what about C7 and C8? C7, C8, you're starting to get a little lower down, and this is more rare from the mechanism of injury. So you would have injury to your ulnar and median nerves, which would lead to problems with using your hands. What about C8T1? C8T1 is Klumpke's palsy. So this would lead to a deficit of basically all the small muscles of the hand. So you'll have taken out your ulnar and your median nerves, which does um, all the intrinsic activities of your hand. And so this will lead to the claw hand. So your wrist will be held in extension, and that's because you won't have anything to flex your wrist. So all the muscles that flex your wrist will be knocked out, and you'll only have wrist extension. 
You'll also have hyperextension of your metacarpal phalangeal joints for kind of the same reasons. Your hand intrinsics will be knocked out, and so your MCPs will be tight because of the extensors. And then same thing with your IP joints, they will be flexed. So if you take your wrist and kind of just do a flop forward and then a flop back, you can tell that as your wrist goes back, your fingers start to flex, and that's just the the tightness there. And that's what you would have. Okay, cool. So when it comes to nerve roots and step one, any other like high yield facts or things you would want to mention? I don't know if this is high yield or not, but the herbs palsy is um, the most common obstetric brachial plexopathy. So if you were to get a question with a baby, a large baby coming out, that is probably your best bet. All right. Um, even if you don't memorize all of these nerves of the brachial plexus, most common obstetric brachial plexopathy is this herbs palsy. Okay, got it. A 25-year-old male presents to the office with complaints of right knee pain and an inability to walk. The patient was playing basketball. Oh, sorry. I'm terrible at sports. The patient was playing baseball when he suddenly heard a popping noise in his knee after sliding into third base. Physical examination is negative for joint line tenderness. Observation reveals posterior sag of the tibial tubercles. Consequent testing with the quadriceps activation test reveals anterior tibial displacement on the femur when the quadriceps contract with knee flexed at 90 degrees. Which of the following structures is most likely damaged? A, anterior cruciate ligament. B, medial collateral ligament. C, medial meniscus. D, patellar tendon. Or E, posterior cruciate ligament and the answer is emily i'm this one you're on your own i don't have much to offer here at all so the posterior sag that is your answer basically so the pcl is ruptured causing your posterior sag okay it's kind of graphic but basically the posterior sag test is you take the leg from the ankle and you straighten it out and you lift it. If the knee goes with the toes up and if the knee bends towards the ground. That's posterior sag. That's your posterior sag. It means you don't have an intact posterior cruciate ligament. Correct. So you've got your two cruciate ligaments, your anterior cruciate ligament and your posterior cruciate ligament. And so the posterior cruciate ligament goes from the medial femoral condyle towards the back of the knee and it attaches at the posterior aspect of your tibia. And this basically prevents posterior translation of your tibia. So if you were to think about the sag test, if you lifted up the leg and the knee, if your PCL was intact, as the tibia went to sink with gravity, your PCL would prevent it from doing that. However, if you rupture it, that's what would cause that. The other test that they mention in this question is the activation of your quadriceps. If you think about where your quadriceps attach to your tibia, they go through your quadriceps tension to your patella and then through your patella tendon to the tibial tubercle, which is on the front of your tibia. If you're to activate your quadriceps, you're basically pulling on that extensor mechanism uh, and causing your tibia to move that way. Okay. 
Now, it can be kind of tricky because you would think, why would the tibia move anteriorly? Isn't that more the ACL? But the problem is with your PCL, if it's ruptured, your tibia will automatically sit posterior. And so what you're seeing with the activation is it going from the new pathologically posterior tibia being pulled anterior back to its normal place. And so even though it looks like it's moving forward, it's actually just moving from the pathologically posterior aspect where it was sitting after you ruptured the PCL to its normal position. So that's actually kind of a tricky part of this question. Yeah, that does make sense though, but I could see how that could be kind of a distracting element within the the vignette. So I think based on what you said, this is pretty clear that this is a PCL injury, but choice A was anterior cruciate ligament. Like what, how does that present on the boards? So the classic um, mechanism of injury for an ACL is a non-contact twisting injury. I assume these, these <laughs> sorts of things happen in sports. Like I'm trying to pivot like when I'm. Yep, exactly. So for example, female soccer players are a classic patients. So they do a lot of cutting, which means rapidly changing direction with a lot of force. ACL tears are also much more common in females. And so that's why they're most often the classic patient for that. But it would be non-contact, meaning that they were running on their own. It's not like someone ran into their knee. Ooh, actually, this is a good going back to the PCL. Another common mechanism of injury for PCL injuries is a dashboard injury. So if you have someone in a car crash, their knee is bent at 90 degrees and their tibia hits the dashboard, causing a posterior translation of that tibia with a femur that's attached, uh, that doesn't move, that can rip the uh, PCL. Okay. So yeah, that 90 degree flexion of the knee is a vulnerable position for the PCL. Going back to the ACL, so non-contact meaning they weren't tackled and landed on. It's more that they were changing direction quickly, their foot pivoted and they felt a pop. You'll also hear that their knee swelled. So usually with ACL injuries, you'll have a large hemarthrosis. So they will have a hear a pop, they will have immediate pain, and their knee will swell up a lot. All this talk makes me want to go to the gym and do leg extensions. <laughs> well, landing mechanisms, there's a lot of preventative training that you can do uh, to prevent ACL tears. It's pretty important because an ACL tear is a, a big deal. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like any, <laughs> any one of these sounds like it hurts. Which is one of the other distractors in the question, the medial joint line pain. Actually, one more thing about ACLs. We had talked about the tests for the PCL. So the tests for the ACL, they will have a positive anterior drawer test and a Lachman's test. So basically the PCL was to prevent the posterior translation of the tibia. Think about putting your hand on someone's tibia and pushing back or the posterior drawer test. So the ACL does the opposite. And so the ACL you would test with an anterior drawer test. The Lachman also does tests anterior translation. So the anterior drawer test, you think about flexing the patient's knee up to 90. Say they're laying supine on the table. Usually what I do is I'll flex their knee up to 90 and then sit on their foot so that that foot is planted. And then I'll put my hands around the tibia and just kind of pull towards me. And that, if you feel no endpoint, it's very soft and it just keeps going. That is a clear positive anterior drawer test. Is that painful? 
It depends. So if they just injured it, they probably won't let you touch it. (laughs) It'll be really hard. And this is actually a a good point because this depends a lot on how much they can relax. Mm. There's a lot of other muscles. If they tense up, it's very difficult to feel if they have a positive test or not. If it just happened a couple of days ago, there it's really hard for a patient to relax. Yeah. Um, however, you can have chronic ACL tears or people that just are able to, you know, find their happy place and relax for you. And then that's when you can feel this big shift in the anterior drawer. And then Lachman? Test kind of the same thing, but instead of being flexed all the way up to 90 degrees, you're only flexing to about 30 degrees um, in the knee. And then you are kind of putting one hand on the femur to stabilize it and then using the other hand to try to translate the tibia forward. They found that this test is actually a little more sensitive. What about the medial collateral ligament, which was choice B? So the medial collateral ligament is another ligament um, in the knee. It's not in the middle. It's more on the side. So a patient who has a medial collateral ligament injury, you would think about a mechanism that would stretch that inside of your knee. Say you were playing a sport and someone hit the outside of your leg, um, causing your knees to go towards each other. Or if you had one leg planted and someone landed on your leg, causing your knee to go into a valgus force. So if you were the third baseman in this question, and the question were about the third baseman, who is standing yeah, and there someone and slid, slid into, into the base and hit you. That would be more consistent with medial collateral ligament injury. Mm-hmm. And they would present to your office with a lot of pain on the medial side. That makes sense. But there's a terrible triad they talk about, MCL, ACL, and medial meniscus injury. Not all of these injuries happen in exactly one plane. And so oftentimes you'll have one injury, maybe something gives... And then you have more injuries. So, for example, if your ACL were to rupture, your tibia is going to rotate and move in such a way that is not natural for your medial meniscus. It'll probably get actually the most common meniscus to be injured in an ACL is your lateral meniscus, just because your tibia rotates and your meniscus often gets pinched or caught and then torn. And how do you diagnose an MCL tear? So an MCL tear, you can actually grade it. So first of all, you would always do your H&P, your (laughs) history and exam. The history, if it's consistent with that, you know to keep going. But on your exam, you would have a lot of tenderness on that medial side of the knee. Then you would want to stress it. So when you come into an orthopedic surgery surgeon's office, you tell us that something hurts and we immediately go and try to push it so that it hurts more. So Forgive us, but that's just what we have to do. Um, so if someone says that their medial, the medial side of their knee hurts really bad, we try to find the ways that make it hurt. So you want to see if this MCL is just a sprain or if it's actually torn. And part of that is just applying a valgus stress on the knee and seeing if it opens up or if it's just painful. So you said the lateral meniscus is the most common meniscus injured in an ACL tear, most common concomitant meniscal injury, I suppose. But what about the medial meniscus? What's important for that? So the um, the caveat to that is that in a chronic ACL tear, you are more likely to have medial meniscus tears. That's a good segue. Yes. So Now, is it true that like joint line tenderness is a big thing in a medial meniscus tear? Because I 
kind of maybe remember that from med school? Yeah. In our question stem, there's negative joint line tenderness, which is hard to imagine that his knee wouldn't hurt there. But what they're trying to tell you with this sentence is that um, joint line tenderness is one of the tests that we do for meniscal pathology. Your meniscus lives at your joint line, right? It's between your femur and your tibia. If you have a tear in that meniscus, generally, if you push on it, it would be painful. So if a vignette says there's no joint line tenderness, I can be pretty sure they don't have a meniscal tear. I think for the purposes of step one, yes. What is McMurray's sign? Is that important to know for the boards? or McMurray's sign is basically your other test for meniscal injury. There are many, many, but one of the most famous is McMurray's. And essentially, you're trying to pinch that torn meniscus between the femur and the tibia. And so you're applying forces to try to get it stuck. So you're going to flex the knee, you're going to apply varus force, depending on which side you're trying to catch, varus or valgus force. Uh, and then you're going to extend, externally rotate and extend. And valgus is just knees towards each other, varus knees away from each other. Yep. Knees away from each other. So it, in practice, your McMurray's will be a combination of all of these things because you're trying to catch the meniscus, the torn piece of meniscus, which would cause pain. Okay. But yeah, a combination of flexed varus or valgus force, and then you're going to externally rotate and extend. Awesome. Well, not awesome. That sounds terrible. But okay, what about what about a... Pat- <laughs> That's another example of if you tell us yeah. that it hurts, we're going to try to make it worse. <laughs> we always do that, though. That's just a doctor thing. <laughs> <laughs> at, at least inflict some pain before we offer the the treatment to make it the better. solution. Yeah. Uh, all right. What about a patellar tendon rupture? What's that look like clinically? Uh, patellar tendon rupture. We talked a little bit about the extensor mechanism of your knee. You've got your patellar, your tibial tubercle connected to your patellar tendon, connected to your patella, connected to your quad tendon, and then connected to your quad. So this entire extensor mechanism needs to be intact in order for you to straighten out your knee. Patellar tendon ruptures typically occur in younger patients. So if you had an extensor mechanism problem in an older patient, you would want to think more of quad tendon rupture. But say in a younger athlete, you would think more of patellar tendon. Most of these happen when your knee is flexed and basically you rip your uh, patellar tendon off. Uh, and you can imagine that since it's connected to your patella, you would feel the patella is higher than it should be. So it gets displaced up towards the femur? Yes. Yep. Is that noticeable just uh, on inspection? It depends on how swollen they are. So that's a pretty violent mm. injury. And so their whole knee would be pretty swollen. But you could probably see that the patella is uh, a little high. You would definitely see it on x-ray. So if you get a lateral of the knee, you would see that the patella is just riding high. Or the fancy word is patella alta. Um, it's just higher than it normally would be. All right. Um, and then, of course, you would try to get them to hold their leg in an extended position. Uh, and if they couldn't, that would definitely be indications uh, to get that fixed. All right, let's move away from the lower extremity and move back to the upper extremity. 
A 65-year-old woman comes to the clinic because her right thumb seems weaker than the left. She's also noticed that she can no longer open jars of food on her own and has dropped two on the floor while carrying them short distances. She retired earlier this year and has spent most of her time quilting, which she used to do only on weekends. Sounds like an exciting weekend. Physical examination shows (laughs) decreased pinprick sensation on the palmar aspect of the first three digits and normal sensation on the thanar eminence. On tapping the palmar surface of the wrist, the patient notices tingling in spots on the lateral half of the hand. Which of the following muscles is innervated by the nerve associated with her condition? It's a complicated interrogatory, but choices are A, adductor pollicis, B, brachioradialis, C, extensor carpi radialis longus, D, pronator teres, and E, supinator. Going back since that was a little complicated, so which of the following muscles is innervated by the nerve associated with her condition? Pronator teres. So this is, yeah, like a two-step question, right? So the first part of the question is asking you to identify what her diagnosis is. So um, carpal tunnel syndrome is basically or most classically numbness in your thumb, index, and long finger. They've actually shown a good way to diagnose patients with carpal tunnel is to have them draw out or color in the part of their hand that's numb. Interesting. They will show you that their thumb, their index, and their long finger are numb. The further on in the question, they talk about tapping on her palmar surface of the wrist, and that's the classic Tennell's test. And so you're basically tapping over the carpal tunnel, irritating the media nerve, causing reproducing or reproducing the symptoms that she has. Um, so now that you know it is the median nerve, the question is asking what muscle is innervated? What muscle in the following list is innervated by the median nerve? And that would be the pronator teres. All right. What's the median nerve do? Like, what else does it innervate? Fast facts about that. So the median nerve is really important for your thenar muscles. Um, it controls basically the lateral side of your hand. So your first two lumbricals, your opponent's pollicis, your abductor pollicis brevis, and your flexor pollicis brevis are all innervated by the median nerve. Okay. The pronator teres, like we said, is innervated in the forearm. This is definitely a two-part question because if you had carpal tunnel syndrome, you would not have any effect of your pronator teres because your median nerve and carpal tunnel syndrome is only affected in your carpal tunnel. And by the time it gets to your carpal tunnel, it's already innervated the pronator teres. Are there, looking at these distractors like uh, adductor pollicis, are there any clinically important syndromes or items to note related to the adductor adductor pollicis? So the adductor pollicis is innervated by your ulnar nerve. And so in your hand, the other half of the important muscles in your hand are basically innervated by your ulnar nerve. Brachioradialis was choice B. That's a a forearm muscle, right? And that's innervated by the radial nerve. Mm -hmm. C was extensor carpi radialis longus, which is like one of the longest muscle names in the body, I suppose. That was a joke. Terrible one, but... (laughs) Um, but this one's also innervated by the radial nerve and functions to extend the radial portion of the hand at the wrist. 
Mm-hmm. And so these last two were innervated by the radial nerve. One thing that I remember from step one is you can have Saturday night palsy. Yeah. Uh, which affects your radial nerve. Basically, if you party a little too hard on a Saturday night and you lay on your radial nerve, nerves are very easily irritated. And so if you end up with a palsy of the radial nerve, you'll have a wrist drop. So that looks like that. Yeah. We're making lots of uh, movements with our wrist today. But <laughs> yes, so you just won't be able to extend your wrist. Okay. Choice E, supinator, also innervated by the radial nerve, obviously supinates the hand. Next, a 59-year-old male presents complaining of bilateral tingling sensation in the fourth and fifth digits of his right hand. He is a computer technician, and this is interfering with his work and has been ongoing for a few months. You notice hypothanar wasting on examination, but no loss of sensation. You suspect a neuropathy of a nerve found in which of the following locations? A, carpal tunnel. B, posterior to the medial epicondyle. C, posterior wrist. D, running along with the profunda brachii artery or E, underneath the biceps brachii tendon? And the answer is B, posterior to the medial epicondyle, because this nerve is the ulnar nerve, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is the other very common neuropathy, cubital tunnel syndrome. So we had kind of talked about the two important nerves of the hand. This will classically be the fourth and fifth or the ring and the small finger of the hand. And the ulnar border of the hand uh, usually is pretty numb too. What else are they talking about here in the question stem? So he's a computer technician. If you think about the nerve swinging around the back of your medial condyle. So everybody, when you hit your funny bone, this is what you hit. You can probably reach down to the medial side of your elbow right now, and if you push hard enough, it'll be pretty uncomfortable. That nerve slings right around the back of that medial condyle, and the more bent your elbow is, the more tension you're putting on this nerve. So as a computer technician, he probably spends a lot of time with his elbow bent typing. I actually have cubital tunnel as well, and uh, you'll notice that a lot of people, well, I sleep with my elbows bent. And a lot of people will have to wake up in the middle of the night with their fingers tingling and kind of shake out their hand or straighten out their elbow to get the feeling back. And that all has to do with putting your nerve on stretch across the back of your medial epicondyle. Yeah. So, I mean, these other distractors, I think we can move on from because we kind of have covered those in the rest of this sort of anatomy review. A 55-year-old woman comes to the emergency department because of wrist pain. Her history indicated that she tripped on the sidewalk and landed on her outstretched right hand. On examination, there's no obvious deformity of the right wrist or hand. She has full passive and active range of motion of the wrist joint. There is pain to palpation over the dorsoradial aspect of the wrist. Axial loading of the thumb reproduces this pain. Grip strength is diminished compared to the left hand. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Fracture of the fifth metacarpal. B. Distal radial fracture. C. Scaphoid fracture. D. Ulnar shaft fracture. Or E. Wrist sprain. And the answer for this is a scaphoid fracture. And I might have got this if I were taking step one. 
this is a pretty classic sort of thing you should probably know for uh, the boards because the pain palpation in that dorsal radial aspect of the wrist is the anatomical snuff box, right? Mm-hmm. And if you have tenderness there, is that for boards purposes, pretty pathognomonic of a scaphoid fracture? Yep. So um, I, I think that they test this a lot because that's something that you don't want to miss the scaphoid fracture. Is it scaphoid? Um, I think so. Oh my that's gosh. what I say. All right. Well, I don't want to have to edit all that. So I'll just correct my pronunciation from here on out. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, so yeah, you don't want to miss a scaphoid fracture. And so that's why it's always important when you have someone who falls on an outstretched hand landing probably on that scaphoid to before you go with just a wrist sprain, if there's no obvious deformity or anything on their x-rays, before you just diagnose them with a wrist sprain, you want to make sure to palpate that snuff box to see if there's any tenderness. And why don't you want to miss it? Is it because the scaphoid bone has a tenuous blood supply? That is exactly why. So uh, scaphoid fractures with that tenuous blood supply, when you think about a fracture healing, there's a couple of things that need to happen. One is it needs to have enough blood in order for it to heal itself. And two is it needs to kind of, it needs to be stable enough to hold still so that the little osteocytes can start to build new bone. So for the scaphoid fracture, it's really more a concern about the blood supply. The scaphoid is over 70% covered with cartilage and ligaments and stuff. So there's really only a couple areas that blood vessels get into it. There's also what we call retrograde flow. So depending on where it's broken, it makes it more or less likely to be able to heal on its own. If you have someone that you feel like might have a scaphoid fracture, and we say might because some of these are so minimally displaced that on x-ray, they're not an obvious fracture. So you might get an x-ray of the hand and not see anything, but they just keep complaining about pain in that one spot. It's better for them if you were to just treat them as though they have a scaphoid fracture, and that would be in a thumb spica splint, basically something that can hold their thumb still, and then have them come back for more x-rays, because if it was actually fractured, you'd probably see something a little bit later on in the healing process. And uh, this is a big site for osteonecrosis, the scaphoid bone, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the whole ultimate point of the discussion about the the blood supply and whatnot. Just curious on that note, osteonecrosis, isn't there like another big area that uh, that shows up on step one, like um, hips in the hips. Uh, so it's right at the, what, the head of the femur? Yeah. So um, yeah, avascular necrosis of the femoral head. There's a couple ways that you can get that. I think on step one, one of the triggers would be high dose steroids that could potentially lead them to them having hip pain that may or may not show up on x-ray. And then you'd have to get an MRI uh, to show basically their femoral head is dying. All right. Sorry, that tangent. But choice A was a uh, fracture of the fifth metacarpal. That's a boxer's fracture, right? Right. So what they're describing there is a boxer's fracture. Or an angry person hitting a wall fracture. Yes, an angry hurt person hitting something that is stronger than their hand fracture. We see a lot of these, but classically someone gets mad and punches something. And you'd be surprised because a lot of people come back with multiples of these. Um, (laughs) Remember that there are studs every 18 inches in a wall. All right, B was a distal radius fracture, uh, Collie's fracture, right? 
So distal radius fractures come in many flavors, but Colley's fractures are extra-articular extension type distal radius fractures, and that's very common Wait, in what like are the they? little. <laughs> so they are extension type. Basically, if you think about your little old lady falling out onto an outstretched hand, she's falling, she's trying to catch herself, and she lands on her wrist. So one of the weakest parts of your bone is the metaphyseal area, which is basically that area just adjacent to the joint line. And then the diaphysis, which is the shaft of the bone, is generally stronger. There's just this mushy part kind of near the ends. And that's where these distal radiuses usually break in these little old ladies. And so you'll have this extension moment where the hand, you think about it extending backwards as she catches herself, little break there. And by extra articular, I mean that it's in that metaphyseal region and it doesn't go into the joint. Okay. So when you use the eponym Collie's fracture, that's what they're referring to. Ulnar shaft fracture. These are called nightstick fractures. What happens with these? This is a kid thing, right? Um, actually, it can happen to anyone. Hopefully, we're <laughs> yes, and, and that's probably why it's called the nightstick fracture. Hopefully, no one is using a nightstick <laughs> on a child, but essentially, that makes sense. These are traumatic. Exactly. So, for example, if you were to paint the picture of someone trying to defend themselves Against from a, a nightstick. nightstick, you would stick out your arm. Right. And if you stick out, put your arm in front of your face, the bone that points away from you is your ulna. Ah. So, oh, I was thinking of green stick. Is there a green stick fracture? Yes, there is. Is that so pediatric? Green stick fracture. It is. Okay. <laughs> I haven't forgot everything uh, about bones. We have such creative names, but if you think about a green stick, like a, a branch that's still pretty green. Yeah. If you were to take a dry branch that's been laying on the ground for a while, it's very easy It'll to snap. snap. Yeah. But if you have a green stick that's still pretty moist or wet, it'll bend first. Yeah. And if it does break, it breaks all in these weird like... It'll break on one side first, right? Yeah. So yeah that's a lot of kid fractures, um, they have green stick or torus fractures. They're different. But a green stick, you think about that springy stick, it'll bend and then it'll break on one side. And the way we say it is there is a break on the tension side, and then there's a plastic deformation. Plastic being that it deforms and then it kind of stays in that position. So it's not a complete break all the way through the bone, but it's green stick. It's bent and kind of broken on one. I would say that this has been so helpful for my own learning just for your explanation of some of these eponyms and classic terms, um, because they're actually sort of descriptive, which I didn't realize. I have no idea why it never registered that a nightstick fracture had to do with like <laughs> trauma to the uh, ulna in defense, <laughs> a defensive position. And then E was wrist sprain. And I think you highlighted that uh, it's important to distinguish a scaphoid fracture from a wrist sprain because of the consequence of avascular necrosis or osteonecrosis resulting from injury to some branch of the radial artery that all right well i don't want to take any more of your time i so appreciate you uh, for taking the time to come on and for those of you who stuck around to the end thank you I want to tell you about a kind of a fun thing we're doing. So this is going to be a fake USMLE question campaign, and we're tying it to a contest. So from now until July 15th, head over to Twitter, go to my page, at Boards Insider, look for the pinned tweet, 
What we're doing are fake USMLE questions. So here's an example. If Deadpool were in a USMLE question vignette, his most likely diagnosis would be A. Dissociative Identity Disorder B. Bipolar Disease C. Antisocial Personality Disorder or D. Other So here are the contest rules. You want to tag the character on Twitter, for instance, Deadpool is at Deadpool Movie in the question vignette, and just set it up like if the character were in a USMLE question vignette, his most likely diagnosis would be, and then make a Twitter poll, pick four answer choices, and tag inside the boards, as well as Gomer Blog. That's at Boards Insider and at Gomer Blog. And then finally, use the hashtag fake. USMLE. The most creative fake USMLE question will get a one-year subscription to our All Audio Cue Bank for free. We'll have fun while doing it, maybe learn something, I don't know. It was just something that I thought would be a lot of fun, and you can also do it on other social media, I guess Reddit, Facebook, and Instagram, where on each platform we are at Inside the Boards, or You can just send us an email to info at insidetheboards.com if you would like to contribute to the fake USMLE campaign.